Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 217 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11, Cislunar. What do we call this strange region between the Earth and the Moon? Cislunar space is the most common term. Is it day or night? Humans generally define night as that time when our planet is between our eyes and the sun. So this must be considered constant daytime. But it looks like night out of the command module's windows. This is Apollo Control at 22 hours, 49 minutes ground elapsed time. Crew has been awake for some time, according to the surgeon. Spacecraft communicator here in mission control with the green team. Bruce McCandless is standing by to make a call to the crew. He's in the process of... uh, Taking over from Ron Evans, Flight Director Cliff Charlesworth has uh, asked that he make a call to the crew. We're standing by for this call momentarily. Apollo 11, Apollo 11. This is Houston, over. Morning, Houston. Apollo 11. Roger, Apollo 11. Good morning. Uh, When you're ready to to copy 11, I've got a, a couple of small flight plan updates and your consumable update. And the morning news, I guess. Over. Just like that, there was no coffee, no amenities. Simply pull out a pen and paper and copy what they said. After the information was copied, Houston radioed the world news. The Russian space probe Luna 15 preceded Apollo 11 to the moon by a couple of days. The crew was not concerned by its presence. But apparently, the people on the ground were, and the long-distance communication wires between Washington and Moscow were nearly burned up, making sure that the two trajectories would not intersect somewhere around the moon. Now, this was highly unlikely, but it was theoretically possible and something the diplomats would worry about. The rest of the news was slightly more interesting. Vice President Spiro T. Agnew thought we should put a man on Mars by the end of the century. 
The Mexican immigration officials were refusing passage to American hippies unless they first bathed and cut their hair. President Nixon declared Monday, July 21st, a federal holiday in celebration of what, hopefully, the Apollo 11 crew would do on Sunday, July 20th. No pressure, right? The excitement of the first day was probably the cause for the crew only sleeping five and a half hours. But in spite of their short sleep, once they were up, they were ready to go. Since leaving Earth, Apollo 11 had been in constant sunlight, and it would be this way until they were almost to the moon. Neil was really looking forward to their dark passage when he would have a clear, distinct view of the universe. There were fewer chores their second day, leaving the astronauts time to listen to music and marvel at the glow of Earth as they moved deeper into space. Armstrong found the music soothing. In his teens, he had played the baritone in a quartet called the Mississippi Moonshiners. Meanwhile, Mike Collins took on the duty of making coffee for everyone. The coffee was dehydrated, of course, in little plastic bags that also contained sugar and cream and could be found in a stowage compartment down in the left side of the lower equipment bay. Collins hunted through the locker until he found the three correct bags and then attached them one by one onto the hot water spigot, filled them, and kneaded them until all coffee and condiments were dissolved. A check valve prevented the hot fluid from escaping. Collins passed out two of the coffees to his crewmates and then started drinking his own through a tube at the end opposite of the check valve. It was lousy coffee, but at least it was lukewarm and familiar, and reminded him vaguely of earth mornings. The housekeeping was also mostly Collins' responsibility, since Neil and Buzz had other responsibilities during their training and did not concern themselves with the details of keeping the command module healthy. There was a sizable list of things for Collins to accomplish, fuel cell purges, batteries charging, food located and prepared, drinking water supply chlorinated, etc. Each item on the list was minor indeed, but together they added up to a significant investment in terms of labor. The crew was 100,000 miles out now, and the earth appeared very small, not much larger than a wristwatch. They were nearly halfway to the moon, and their speed had been decreasing ever since translunar injection. So it was now a mere 5,400 feet per second, about one-seventh of what it was this time yesterday. Sir Isaac Newton was driving today. The sun, the earth, and the moon were all pulling Apollo 11, just as Newton predicted they would. The trajectory of the spacecraft was bending from its initial direction and velocity after translunar injection in response to these three gravity wells. Up until now, the Earth's influence had been dominant, but by late tomorrow, the moon would take over and their speed would begin to increase again. In the meantime, Apollo 11 would have to correct their course slightly. The service module engine firing would last for three brief seconds, 
Mike Collins would be driving instead of Sir Isaac Newton for those three seconds. The first course correction burn took place at T plus 26 hours 45 minutes. Houston Apollo 11, Amy and Hagen. Sorry, read you loud and clear on the uh, high gain down here, and everything's looking good from our standpoint for your burn. Over. Okay, Bruce. This is Apollo Control at 26 hours 40 minutes. We're just under four minutes to the mid course correction maneuver. Apollo 11's distance from the Earth is 109,245 nautical miles. Its velocity is 5,033 feet per second. Spacecraft weight, 96,361 pounds. One minute to the burn. The duration will be three seconds. Burning. Shut down. Houston burn completed. You copy in our residuals? Uh, affirmative. mid-course correction restored Apollo 11's trajectory to perfection. Now the crew had a chance to prowl around their strangely shaped command module. On Earth, it had always rested on its heat shield base, tapering upward toward the tunnel at the apex of its triangular shape. Now there was no up or down, and without gravity, the cabin assumed an entirely different character. Collins thought, this can't be the same command module I spent so many hours in at Downey and the Cape. It seems much more spacious now, and its parts somehow seem to be stuck together at different angles. As Collins slid over the center couch into the lower equipment bay, his legs unexpectedly curled around the tunnel, so that instead of finding his face against the navigator's panel, Collins discovered that he was looking the other way, back toward the side hatch and its circular window. It took some getting used to. On Earth, the tunnel was simply wasted space overhead, but now it turned into a pleasant little nook where one could stay out of the way of the other two astronauts. During this not-so-busy time, Neil and Buzz spent some time reviewing their future lunar module activities, and Collins burned up a little excess energy by running in place. Collins found a spot in the lower equipment bay which suited his purpose, allowing him to brace his arms overhead against one bulkhead, holding his body steady while his feet pound against another flat surface, the floor. Since he still had biomedical sensors attached to his chest, he decided to find out how heavy a load he could put on his heart by simply kicking his legs. 
Collins told Houston what he was doing and asked the medics to watch his heart rate while he ran in place. Strangely enough, Armstrong joined him and the two of them jogged along while Buzz got out the TV camera and pointed it at them. Houston reported, Mike, we see about a 96 heart rate now. Collins replied, Okay, thank you. That's about all that is reasonable without getting hot and sweaty. With no possibility of getting a shower for the next six days, there was no point in working up a sweat. Although Collins did feel better, his lower back seemed to stiffen up during weightlessness, and now he was a little more comfortable. Next, they switched the TV camera into position to point out the window at the Earth 130,000 miles away. Neil described it in great detail, everything from the polar ice cap to the bands of clouds near the equator. Collins was holding the camera as steady as he could, framing the world in the window. Then he did something surprising. Slowly, he turned the camera 180 degrees in his hands, announcing as he did, Okay, world, hang on to your hat. I'm going to turn you upside down. Roger! said Charlie Duke in Mission Control, and Collins chortled, You don't get to do that every day. Here's a sampling of the TV broadcast. Okay, Levin, we have a picture. We see the Earth right in the center of the screen, over. Hi, Roger. Houston, Apollo 11. Calling in from about 130,000 miles out. And uh, we'll zoom our camera in slowly, uh get the most magnification we can, uh, over. Roger. This view is coming to us from about 129,000 nautical miles. 11 Houston, uh, the uh, definition is uh, pretty good on our monitor here. The color's not too uh, varsity, at, le at least on this set. Uh, could you describe what you're uh, looking at, over? Roger, you're seeing Earth as uh, we see it uh, at our left-hand window, just a little more than a half Earth. Uh, we're looking at uh, the eastern Pacific Ocean, and the north half of the top half of the screen, uh, we can see uh, North America, Alaska, United States, Canada, Mexico, and Central America. South America becomes invisible just off beyond the Terminator or inside the shadow. Unfortunately, we only have one uh, window that uh, has a view of the Earth, and it's filled up with a TV camera, so uh, your view now is probably better than ours is. Roger, we copy. Uh, 11, uh, Houston, uh if you could uh, comply, we'd uh, like to see uh, some smiling faces up there. If you could give us some interior views, I'm sure everybody would like to uh, see you over. As uh, we pan back out to uh, the distance at which we see the Earth, we'll have Apollo 11 signing off. Roger, Apollo 11. Thank you much for the uh, show. It's a real good half hour. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Al. This is Apollo Control. That uh, TV transmission uh, lasted about uh, 35 minutes.
At T plus 35 hours 33 minutes, the astronauts in mission control conducted a quick laser experiment. The laser was fired through a telescope at McDonald Observatory near El Paso, Texas. It was a blue-green laser. They flashed on and off at a frequency of one second on and one second off. The goal was for the crew to see it. Here's the clip. Hello, Apollo 11, Houston. McDonald's got the laser turned on. Would you take a look? Over. Okay, Charlie. It's bluish green. Apollo 11, Houston. If you see it, it should be coming up. Appear to be coming up through the clouds. Uh, McDonald reports that there's a break in the clouds that they're beaming this thing through. Over. But we did identify the El Paso area, and it appeared to us to be a break in the clouds there, and we looked in that break and saw nothing. By the time they finished with the laser experiment and got the TV equipment packed up, it was time for bed, and all three of them were relaxed and ready for a long sleep. This time it was Colin's turn under the left couch, zipped loosely into a floating hammock. He was very comfortable indeed. This is Apollo Control at 48 hours into the Apollo 11 mission. Spacecraft is 160,760 nautical miles from Earth. Distance from the moon is 64,115 nautical miles. Earth reference to velocity 3,529 feet per second. The rest period has now lasted an hour longer than uh, the 10-hour period scheduled. It's extended to 11 hours now. Flight surgeon says there are indications that the, the commander, Neil Armstrong, may be awakening some stirring around. However, we have not yet put in a call to uh, the crew. The mid-course correction three scheduled uh, this afternoon at an elapsed time of 53 hours, 54 minutes has been canceled. The velocity value for that mid-course is uh, only eight-tenths of a foot per second. So we will not, uh, not do mid-course correction number three. We'll continue to stand by uh, for either a call from the ground or a call from the spacecraft. This is Apollo Control at 48 hours, 9 minutes. We've just put in a call to the crew. Here's that conversation. Apollo 11, Apollo 11. This is Houston, over. Good morning, Houston, Apollo 11. Hey, good morning, Apollo 11. Uh, Apollo 11, this is Houston. Uh, Roger, say again, please. Roger, how do we learn system? Roger, they're looking great, and as far as we can tell, everything is uh, good from down here, over. Collins woke up by hearing Buzz talk on the radio. Houston decided Apollo 11 did not need a mid-course correction today, since their trajectory was still nearly perfect. Collins felt good beginning the third day in space, and with the cancellation of the mid-course correction burn, the crew had plenty of time to putter around. About the only big job Collins had to do was to remove the probe and drogue from the tunnel in order to clear a path for Neil and Buzz 
into the lunar module so that they could check it over. But, as it turned out, Neil decided to remove the probe and drogue himself. This whole procedure was televised, and it took an hour and a half. Here are some highlights. Apollo 11, Houston, it's a pretty good show here. It looks like you almost got the probe out. Okay, it's moving now, coming down. Mike must have done a smooth job in that docket. Uh, there isn't a dent or a mark on the probe. Okay, drug removal is coming next. Once removal of the drogue is completed, they will have access to the uh, lamb hatch and be able to go into the tunnel. Eleven Houston, the tunnel looks pretty clear to us. Somebody going up there now. Over. All right, Mike, uh, checking his uh, connectors up there now. Right. Yeah, we're about to open the hatch now. Right. Is that same guy that when you open up the door, why he's waiting there for you and he turns the lights on? How about that? Just like the refrigerator. That conversation between Charlie Duke and uh, Mike Collins referring to the automatic light that comes on in the uh, LEM when the hatch is opened. 11 Houston, uh, Bussy already in. Over. Right, I'm halfway in. I'm going to start turning around, I guess. Hey, that's a great shot right there. We see you in there. Guess that's uh, Neil and Mike. Buzz Aldrin has apparently carried the camera into the limb with him, uh, showing us uh, Neil Armstrong and Mike Collins back in the CSM. Everything seems to be in place down there. The uh, vehicle is surprisingly free of any uh, debris floating around. It's very clean. Roger. Well, I got a beautiful view of the uh, side of the command module out of the AOT looking in the uh, left rear detent. Right. I can see the hatch and all the uh, all the EVA handrails. First time we've seen the uh, silvery outside of the command module. Uh, there wasn't very much uh, debris in the command module or the limb. We found very few uh, uh, loose particles of uh, bolts, nuts and screws, and lint things. Very few in each uh, each spacecraft. They were very clean. We see you raise the cover on the abort stage. We don't recommend that. Yeah, we're going to take that one over. Right. We're going to take that one over. We concur. The uh, restraints in here do a pretty good job of pulling my pants down. Roger. We haven't quite got that before the 50 million TV audience yet. I'm uh, checking out this window bracket uh, where I'll be putting it for the uh, EVA uh, pictures of Neil going down the ladder. Roger. That's about the position. Uh, we'll be putting the camera in after the initial descent down the ladder, and it'll be taking one frame a second for uh, most of the EVA. What was that, Buzz? You're chasing now. That was uh, that was me picking up some uh, particles of paint that were floating through the air in front of the camera there. Right, Neil. We got it. Okay. For those of you that don't know, this is where we uh, lock most of our data for each of the uh, land maneuvers. And uh, we have another card like this. It's the timeline book that uh, we place down on the table in front of the uh, data and display keyboard. And it's on this timeline that we have all our procedures. Uh, we obviously uh, have to hold these in place in zero G, so we make use of the Velcro patches on the back and on the table. So we can attach these down here. 
And then we just turn the pages over when we go to new sequences in our uh, timeline of procedures. We're giving you a picture now of the uh, floor of the cabin. I think you can see the uh, one of the two portable life support system uh, backpacks here in the center. And on each side, we have the two uh, helmet visors. I'll remove one of them and show you uh, a little closer view of what this looks like. Inside the helmet visors are the EVA gloves with the blue tips. I'll not take those out now. Eleven, uh, you got a pretty big audience. It's live in the U.S. It's going live to Japan, Western Europe, and much of South America. Everybody reports very good color. Appreciate the great show. Strike all only, Charlie, to get back in the limb again. The uh, traverse from the bottom of the limb uh, to the uh, aft bulkhead of the command module must be about, oh, 16, 20 feet. It's uh, not as disorienting one at all, but it's most interesting to uh, contemplate just pushing off from one and uh, bounding on into the other vehicle all the way through the tunnel. And Charlie, I'd like to say uh, hello to all uh, my fellow scouts and scatters at uh, Farragut State Park in Idaho. They have the National Jamboree there this week, and Apollo 11 like to send them best wishes. Thank you, Apollo 11. I'm sure that uh, if they didn't hear that, uh, they will get the word uh, through the uh, news. Uh, certainly appreciate that. And uh, we're going to turn our TV monitor off now uh, for a short bit while we have some other work to do. Uh, Apollo 11 signing off. Mission Control seemed to really enjoy the TV a lot, judging from their comments, and it must have been eerie for the layman seeing the crew floating in all directions past the endless panel of switches. Neil and Buzz looked different to Collins now, and he realized why. It was their eyes. With no gravity pulling down the loose fatty tissue beneath their eyes, they looked like they were squinting all the time. During the lunar module checkout, Neil was looking for a scratch or any sign of damage while Buzz, the lunar module pilot, began preparing Eagle for its separation from Columbia some 45 hours later. Their inspection found nothing and they happily reported to Mission Control that their lander was immaculate and ready to go. As a side note, there was no power margin to transmit the live lunar module status data to Gene Krantz's mission control team at this point in the flight. They would not be able to see data until the final checkout six hours before landing. But then they would have very little time to give the go or no go decisions. Also of note, at the end of Krantz's team's third shift, they had to take 32 hours off so they could be back in mission control for the lunar landing. During those 32 hours, Charlesworth's team would get the Apollo 11 into lunar orbit, then Milt Wendler's team would have Apollo 11 trim the orbit and make another lunar module inspection. After the TV broadcast, Neil and Buzz remained in the lunar module until about T plus 58 hours. Then they closed the hatch and put back the Drogon probe. Hi, Wilco. We're just finishing up the uh, probe and 
At about T plus 60 hours, 45 minutes, the crew noticed an unexplained flashing object out the window, which appeared to be catching the sunlight as it tumbled. Armstrong thought it might be the S-4B stage. Here's the clip. Go ahead, 11, over. Do you have any idea where the S-4B is with respect to us? This is Apollo Control at 60 hours, 47 minutes. Uh, we just got a call from the spacecraft uh, requesting that we give them the position of the S-4B in respect to uh, the spacecraft. And we're currently coming up with that bit of information, so we'll stand by. Apollo 11, Houston, the S-4B is about 6,000 nautical miles from you now. Over. Okay, thank you. The answer from Mission Control indicated that the mystery object was highly unlikely to be the S-4B stage, given its great distance from Apollo 11. Although the object's identity was never resolved, it was quite possible that it was one of the SLA panels which covered the lunar module during launch. Now I have an excerpt from the 1969 technical debriefing after the astronauts returned to the Earth. Aldrin speaks first. Of course, we were seeing all sorts of little objects going by at the various dumps, and then we happened to see this one brighter object going by. We couldn't think of anything else it could be other than the S-4B. We looked at it through the monocular, and it seemed to have a bit of an L shape to it. Armstrong, like an open suitcase. Aldrin, we were in passive thermal control at the time, so each of us had a chance to take a look at this, and it certainly seemed to be within our vicinity and a very sizable dimension. Armstrong, we should say that it was right at the limit of the resolution of the eye. It was very difficult to tell just what shape it was, and there was no way to tell the size without knowing the range or the range without knowing the size. Aldrin. So then I got down in the LEB and started looking for it in the optics. We were grossly misled because with the sextant all focus, what we saw appeared to be a cylinder. Armstrong. Or really two rings. Aldrin. Yes. Armstrong. Two rings. Two connected rings. Collins. No, it looked like a hollow cylinder to me. It didn't look like two connected rings. You could see this thing tumbling, and when it came around end on, you could look right down its guts. It was a hollow cylinder, 
but then you could change the focus on the sextant and it would be replaced by this open book shape. It was really weird. Aldrin. I guess there's not too much more to say about it other than it wasn't a cylinder. And that is the end of the excerpts from the technical brief. With five-sixths of their flight completed, Earth's gravity diminished and the moon's grip assumed dominance. Steady acceleration toward the small world required new thinking. The moon's mass was only one-sixth of the Earth's mass. It was, in all practical senses, a dead world. On its surface, the moon's horizon was much closer than on Earth, and it was airless. No atmosphere or weather. Neil, Mike, and Buzz knew what waited for them the next day. Entering lunar orbit was not a certainty. If their rocket did not slow Apollo 11 to the correct velocity, they would go around the moon and return to the vicinity of Earth. As the crew prepared for sleep, Collins reflected on the day. It was July 18, 1969, the third anniversary of the flight of Gemini 10, and a pretty quiet day. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 217 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 11, Cislunar. Hope you enjoyed that episode. I did. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all that as well as download every episode of the podcast on the homepage at spacerockethistory.com. Today we salute the Gemini level donors. There are 11 so far this year. Gemini donors give $40 or more during the calendar year and we want to thank you for your continued support Gemini donors. Had a few afterthoughts on this week's episode. It turned out to be a pretty quiet two days there during the cislunar period, but some important things did happen. We don't have to worry about Luna 15 anymore, and if you missed that episode, it was covered on episode number 200. We also discovered the most comfortable place to sleep was under the left couch using a hammock. But more importantly, the lunar module checkout went well, so we are go. It was a little concerning that there was not enough power budgeted to transmit telemetry from the lunar module until six hours before landing. It would have been nice if they could have transmitted the data while Neil and Buzz were in there checking things out, but power was tight. The TV portion for Neil and Buzz in the lunar module was over an hour and a half. It took a long time to edit that down to five or six minutes. Now, a little bonus content. Around T plus 25 hours 11 minutes, 
Neil's backup commander, Jim Lovell, got on the radio to talk to him. Here's the clip. Apollo 11, Houston. Is the uh, commander aboard? This is Jim Lovell calling with Apollo 11. All right, commander aboard. I was a little worried. This is the backup commander still standing by. You haven't given me the word yet to how you go. You've lost your chance to take this one, Jim. Okay, I concede. Lovell was still on standby just in case. <laughs> a little kidding around by Jim there. But don't worry, Jim will get another chance on Apollo 13. Okay, I posted some pictures and the audio for the episode on the webpage at spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. I was very pleased to receive several new donations to support the podcast over the last week. Peter W. from Germany donated at the Salyut Skylab level and earned his moon emoji. Christopher T. from the UK donated at the Mercury level and earned his rocket emoji. Niles L. sent in another donation, moving him up to the Mercury level. Tobias S. from Austria sent in another donation, moving him up to the Gemini level. And Mike M. increased his pledge on Patreon and moved up to the Mercury level. Thank you, donors. So that brings our total Patreons to 126, and that is 24 short of the goal of reaching 150 by the end of the year. And we are at 214 for our overall donors with a goal of reaching 300 by the end of the year. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2017, please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. Keep in mind Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded, and I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. You don't have to donate much. You could make a one-time $10 donation at the Vostok level or sign up for Patreon for a dollar a month donation or whatever level you want. Sort of like a voluntary subscription. Just go to the homepage and click on one of the links on the top right side of the page and begin your support of the Space Rocket History Podcast. For those of you who have already donated for 2017, I certainly appreciate it. I have another one of these Orion desk model kits to give out. The model is of an Orion spacecraft, service module, and solar arrays. It is made out of cardstock. To assemble, you just push out the pre-cut parts and fold them together. To select a winner, I gave each donor a number between 1 and 214. I put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number 52. Donor number 52 is Joe Hohokum. Joe, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. I was pleased to see the podcast received one new five-star rating on iTunes over the past week. I'd like to thank Yolax Bro for taking the time and effort to write a very kind review and giving the podcast the all-important five-star rating. I want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media. And thanks to those who've already done so. I have one personal note I need to share with you. Mrs. SRH fell and broke her wrist yesterday. She has to have surgery to repair the damage, and that is scheduled for Monday. 
so it is possible I may be a day late for episode 218. That's all I have for today. Thank you for listening, and so long for now.